Hello, and welcome to a brand new episode of Third Degree Burn. My name is Brian Hughes, and I'm here with my good friend, Tim Elliott. Hello. Say hi, Tim. There he is. And we have got some great special guest stars with us today. Uh, We're doing a continuation of our team up, uh, the team up that you could marvel at. See what I did there? With the Back to the Bins guys. Say hello to Paul Spataro. Hello. And Dr. Bill Robinson. Wait, where am I? What? It's the Odd Couple audition. Just go with it. (laughs) Got it. Anyway, what we're going to do today is we're going to continue our uh, sojourn into Marvel Team-Up. The uh, In the last episode with uh, Back to the Bins, which you can pretty much download already, uh, we covered Marvel Team Up 69. Say it again, guys. 69, 69. Dude. <laughs> dude. And we'll finish that up by covering Marvel Team Up 70, the team up between with Spider-Man and Thor against the living monolith. And, Tim, I think you're going to be doing the heavy lifting today. Am I right? I am. And by heavy lifting, I mean stuff I printed off the uh, internet and printed on my computer. It wasn't a lot oh, of you don't, uh, That's plenty heavy. That's plenty heavy. But I have actual paper in my hands. Uh, well, we, away we go. <laughs> but we should stress that if you haven't listened to Back to the Bins, stop what you're doing, go download that, listen to it, because otherwise you're going to be completely confused at what's going on in this show. Okay, I'm going to pull up my popcorn while you're reading the synopsis. All right. All right. Uh, as stated by uh, Mr. Hughes, we are covering uh, Marvel Team-Up number 70. Uh, Storyline is Whom Gods Destroy. Uh, the book has a cover date of June 1978, a on-sale date of March 28, 1978. Uh, it's 32 pages, 22 are story, and it costs a whopping 35 cents. Uh, our writer is Cliss Chris Claremont. Our artist is John Byrne. Our inker is Tony DeZunga. DeZunga. Okay, I must have typed that wrong. Okay. Our, our cover art is John Byrne and Tom Palmer. Uh, our letter is Annette Kowetsky. Kowetsky. Color is Phil Rachelson. And our editor in chief is uh, Jim Shooter. Now, we cover this on our show, so I'm going to. The uh, other Byrne books that came out when this came out were. Uh, he had Doomsday Plus One, number seven. Doomsday Minus Two. He's artist on that. Uh, That's a reprint. Is it a reprint? Yeah, it's a reprint in number one. Is it? Okay. Yeah, because he only did six issues. Oh, okay. Uh, and Uncanny X-Men, number 111, Mind Games. He's the artist and, of course, same team in that. Chris Claremont is the writer and he's the artist on that. Okay, our synopsis for Whom Gods Destroy. The living monolith has risen once again and is rampaging through New York with Spider-Man in his clutches. Spider-Man attempts to trip up the foe by firing webbing into his eyes, but the monolith pulls it off easily and, growing tired of Spider-Man, tosses him away. Unable to snare the side of a building to slow him down and prevent his own death, Spider-Man is saved at the last moment by Thor. Taken to safety by the Avenger, Spider-Man explains everything that has happened and points to the living monolith, points the living monolith out to Thor. That shouldn't be too hard, he's a huge towering man walking through the city. Thor chases after the villain and attempts to strike him, but the attack has little effect and Thor is battered away like a mere insect. This doesn't stop Thor, he continues to battle on, but the two powerful beings are evenly matched. Spider-Man returns to the living monolith's base and realizes that Havoc is the key to the monolith's power. Telling Thor the thunder, telling Thor, the thunder god, tosses his hammer towards Havoc in the hopes of destroying the machine. The monolith laughs as he is 
as he has rigged the device with a booby trap that will kill Havoc if it is tampered with. Spider-Man quickly tries to stop Thor's hammer with his web line. He's pulled along with it and is unable to stop the hammer, but he throws it off course enough so that it doesn't strike Havoc. Leaving Thor to keep the monolith busy, Spider-Man decides to go back and try to disarm the trap before freeing Havoc. Thor knocks the living monolith out into New York Harbor, where the two battle away. Battle out away from the risk of harming any bystanders. Thor unleashes the full fury of his powers, creating a gigantic hurricane to keep the monolith under wraps. Spider-Man checks things out through a pair of binoculars on the Empire State Building before returning to the monolith's hideout. Easily knocking out the monolith's men, Spider-Man uses his spider sense to detect the booby trap and deactivates it. Spider-Man frees Havoc just as the living monolith is about to unleash a powerful blast of cosmic energy. With Havoc free, the monolith loses all his power, reverts to his human form, and is lost at sea. With the battle over, Thor ends the storm and returns to the mainland, where he meets with Spider-Man and Havoc. With the Pharaoh defeated and his men rounded up, Havoc realizes that his lover Polaris was knocked out, was knocked into the sea when he was kidnapped, and is instantly worried about her well-being. Thor agrees to take Havoc back with him and arrange with Tony Stark to, to have him sent home by the end of the evening. With his arrangement made, with with his with this arrangement made, Havoc and Thor bid farewell to Spider-Man and depart. Well, that was a terrible reading of a not very good synopsis. I'm gonna start writing my own again because that is. That was clunky. I got the, the point across. Though. Yeah, yeah, a little wordy, but... So, what did everybody think of the continuation? Well, I think it's I, obvious the art is so much better in this one with the inks. And, and you guys brought up the coloring before that uh, in, in this one as compared to the last one. And, I think it jumps right out at you from the splash page. Yeah. And you, just, you just see so much greater detail. Well, who, who did the cover on this one? That looks like a burn cover. It is burn and Palmer. Burn drew it and mm. Palmer inked it. Oh, okay. On that first page, I was sitting there looking at that, um, thinking that older character on the right, the balding one, looks like Jaron Hogarth, you know, the lawyer for Power Man and Iron Fist. <laughs> it looks like it could be somebody that's supposed to be. I got a, especially this first page, but kind of throughout this book, I got a bit of a Neil Adams vibe. And I don't know if that's because of the previous story he did in X-Men with, with uh, the Pharaoh. Or just with the way Burn is kind of arranged. So there's some a lot of Dutch angles and things in here that, um, and it, the fact that it's a little more detailed than the previous issue. Yeah, I think yeah. all that knows it. Did you catch the uh, X Men advertisement? Yeah, monthly in um, in May. It's like the third page, I think. Yeah. Which they also mentioned that at the end, it's, you know, as Chris and John take time off to begin the new monthly X Men, a brand new creative team brings you Spider Man and Falcon. <laughs> I like the. Uh, the well i guess it's a splash it's like the center of the book or the two page where thor yeah the two page spread yeah that that was... whole that whole sequence makes me think of war of the gargantua you know uh he might have been a young species of a gargantua hey look <gasps> another one <laughs> what's the matter <laughs> the giant get back to the car you know, the opening sequence from that, the gargantua takes the boat out of the water mm. and splashes it around to get the people to eat them. Fortunately, you know, the monolith doesn't doesn't eat. See, it public. looks to me like, you know, I said the inking, I think, is superior in this by, uh, what's his name? Tony DiZaniga. But if you start going through it, it almost looks like as it got later in the book, and it was probably starting to get, you know, a little bit of a time crunch, uh, it looks like he started maybe 
going a little quicker and not doing quite as much in the backgrounds later in the issue. And picking a lot of, and lot of dark backgrounds. Yeah, a lot, a lot of you know shots where, where you don't see as much going on behind him. Uh, whereas earlier on, it felt like there was more. In you mean so like that... the next to the last panel where it's just it's nighttime and it's just orange behind everybody? Yeah, things like that. Like uh, you know, I, I get the feeling that that it. You know, as 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 the deadline started to get closer, it was like, well, I could cut a corner here and cut a corner there, despite the fact that I feel like the. We I'd read Byrne himself said that this was one of his favorite inking jobs of his work that he'd seen, and it is such a shame that that you know Dezunia did not do more of of, of Byrne's work. And, it's pretty good. Uh, it, it, yeah, I'm gonna I'm gonna amend what I said earlier. I thought the the previous issue felt more look more burn like but i think i was reacting more maybe more to the faces this now that i look at this more some of the layouts and especially the uh, uh his kirby crackle and his his depiction of like the maelstrom and uh this energy crackling around the two characters that seems the way it's inked, it's inked seems more burn than especially yeah. that one page on 26 where the the monolith uh, is fixing is kind of powering up and you've got all this energy around him um, that's very that's very much burned. So I guess I wasn't looking as close as I thought of this. But... Yeah, he's almost turned into a negative image of himself. Mm-hmm. Yeah, reminds me a little bit of Pro- stuff like that. Reminds me a little bit of Proteus. Um, mm. Yes, I saw that as well. What the same thing. Uh, and Spider Man, I think, is rendered a little is rendered his anatomy is a little better. And I think that's just really kind of more dynamic. But I think maybe to, the, to Paul's point is because this is Thor. Is, is kind of center stage in this, and Spider-Man's kind of taken a backseat. It is more of a bigger, widescreen, kind of more epic um, storytelling. So I don't know if that was purposely done for Byrne, just because he's dealing with two different characters. I don't know, but this one makes me lament that Byrne himself did not do more with Thor at all. I mean, aside from what little of him he did in the Avengers, there's really not a whole lot of Thor there by Byrne. I, Except for uh, his appearance in Namor, which was very interesting years later. One thing I, I do like is the the sequence where Thor throws the hammer at the monolith's back and hits him right in the back with that heavy thum. Um, Actually, you know, the little hammer compared to the size of the monolith, but it's yeah. still enough to drive him into the uh, into New York Harbor. But I know what Bill's thinking right now. He's going to have a kidney stone the next morning. <laughs> because that's exactly what would happen to me if you hit me right there. I don't want to talk about kidney stones. And then, then you follow that up with the two-page splash kind of... Well, it's a splash, but there's also panel work in it. Uh, I think it's a really nice sequence with the hand coming up and taking the boat out of the water. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And then, you know, Thor smashing. Beautiful. And the shot, the shot of Thor uh, swinging his hammer and bringing the, uh, you know, the lightning down is very cool. Also, yeah, that's, that's I, I love that that all that depiction of the storm behind him. Now I've got a, a Kindle version of this. I've got the the Marvel Team Up booklet uh, trade paperback on Kindle, and um, as as you go to this page, you can click on each of the panels, and it gives you a nice close up of each one of them, so it makes it easier to read on the tablet or whatever. And just seeing that one panel of the hands come up out of the water to grab the boat is, is fantastic. Amazing. You can see the people trying to get off 
and then the the one panel of Thor up there in the sky with all the Kirby crackle and everything around him, and that's just beautiful. And that's a shame because my my CBR, it's even though I can see double pages, it splits it, so I don't get to see page sixteen and seventeen together. It flips, so I, I can't see that splat that double page like it was. Um, yeah, similar to the Superman we just covered, it was all full page spreads. Like yeah, like this. Yeah, where it reached across. Uh, this Kindle app is pretty handy. You guys hear the but, Scott the Scott Gardner sound effect when uh, Spider Man sees the hammer go by him, and then he does the one eighty. I hear uh, <laughs> <laughs> definitely. The only thing I question about that two page spread is the use of the of coom as the uh, I'm, wait. I'm sorry, I miss crack. It's crackoom. So it's crackoom. Because the, the KRA is just under so much um, rubble. rubble. Or as Byrne would like to refer to that, argle bargle. <laughs> yeah, well, yeah, that's a new thing we learned. That is yes. turn for rubble. I, I will never complain about onomatopoeia that sounds like <laughs> Goom. <laughs> Since Goom was one of our favorite characters on Back to the Bands. <laughs> true, true. I just, again, I did not realize until right there that that was Kra-Koom. I just saw Coom. Now I'm thinking Kumbaya. Kumbaya. <laughs> I, I like the fact that ultimately Thor really didn't defeat the monolith. He was able to go blow for blow with him to a large extent, but he never defeated him. The only reason he lost was because Spider-Man was able to release Havoc. That's so, why it's a team-up. But Sorry. I like the fact that, you know, I, I don't like when they take these villains, they power them up, and then they have to present them as being, you know, beaten fairly easily. And sometimes in a, in a team-up book, they do that because they need to move it along quickly. They don't have, you know, six issues to bring out a story. You know, it's usually, you know, we, we have to come up with a contrived way, excuse me, a contrived way to bring these heroes together. Then we have to have the battle, and we're going to have to have it resolved fairly quickly because... We only have so many pages to work with. So a lot of times in these team-up books, I feel like they don't do justice to the power level of the villains. And in this particular up, instance, I think they did. But you brought up something interesting here. The you know, Of course, it's Thor sitting there doing the heavy lifting and trying to stab off you know massive death and, and everything, and where Spider-Man's sitting there having to think his way through it. This ending is just like Superman, Spider-Man 2 where Superman's inside the reactor trying to hold it all together while Spider-Man has to figure out how to fix the reactor. Mm -hmm. And just as he's about to hit the wrong thing, his spider sense tells him, no, you need to go the other way. Whereas here, he's got to hit the right button, and his spider sense tells him, nope, not this one, not this one, that one's good. Well, because, you know, obviously, and he says in the, in the story of Spider-Man, this is way out of my league. I don't fight these kind of guys. This is this yeah. is more Thor's territory. So Spider-Man gets to be, I like when they portray this Spider-Man, hey, he's a smart guy. You know, he's a, he's a, right. whatever, whatever level of genius he is or whatever he is. But, you know, he's not just a guy that can, that can punch with his fist. He's got a brain too. So he gets, that's, obviously he can't go fisticuffs with the monolith. So he's going to do what he can. And you know, he has to tech the tech and Thor's doing the punchy, punchy run, run. So right. um, that's, you know, that makes, and it's interesting. I wonder how, when they, when they, when they're right, when they were writing team up, uh, it's like, okay, who can we pair Spider-Man with now? And it's like, do they pick the villain first? Cause if they pick the monolith, well, we got to pick somebody that 
can go toe-to-toe with the monoliths? Or is it, okay, we're going to do Spider-Man and Thor, but what's a good villain that they can kind of share duties with? And that was always a tough thing with Marvel Team-Up because it was like the redheaded stepchild of the Spider-Books because they would be wanting to sit there and, and do one, but you notice they're not fighting typical Spider-Man foes. It's because they say, well, we'd like to fight Doc Ock, and they're like, well, no, we can't because we're doing a Doc Ock story a couple months from now or right in the middle of one. Or you can, know, so, yeah, and, and, yeah, they have to have a – I think it's best they kind of pick a, a villain that's not necessarily either one of them's rogues galleries so that they can they – can, one, you may be able to use a character that doesn't maybe not get a lot of uh, issue time. And like uh, the Pharaoh obviously is not. I mean, would you consider him a B-list or C-list villain? He's not really a. Uh, well, he's certainly Havoc's number one. Yeah. It's true. It's true. And it's, it's not like the Scourge went after him. So, no. you know, he's not that low on the Yeah, I think Havoc. Well, he's, 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 a, he's a very high powered villain. Yeah. He's but, just not, you know, a, a, an A-list character. Right. But it, it, I think it, it also is nicely done that is where he's lower powered as the living pharaoh that spider-man can kind of take on and then when he becomes the monolith obviously thor has to go back and do the science stuff so uh they 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 knit very easily very uh, nicely together the two stories and and i was always amazed at how how well it did turn out that you'd have to is a handoff you know because uh, it's really usually the the first person in the in the team up is was gone and he's They've handed it off to somebody else, but in this case, Havoc is still here, and he doesn't really do anything except, uh, you know, exert his power, I guess. And when he yells, I guess he's yelling Pharaoh on page twenty-seven. Is that what he is? He yelling Pharaoh when he's kind of taking the power back. Yeah, I guess. <laughs> That's his con <laughs> moment. Um. <laughs> yeah, that make that makes me think more of um, when Superman yelled Mongol, in uh, for the Superman who has everything. But obviously, this is before both, you know, Rathacon and that. Did you guys, um, you know, before reading this book, had you ever heard of the Living Monolith? This one in the previous issue, had you heard of the Living Monolith before? Or was this your first experience? I, I knew it from the, the, I, yeah, the I graphic from novel. The yeah, I was familiar from the. Wow, I'd say you're old, but you're you're not much older than me, Paul. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks, well, I had been by this time. I had been collecting years. I think my, if I remember right, my first issue of Marvel Team Up was issue 18. Wow. So, by this time, I was well indoctrinated into Marvel way. Well, as we know, it's it's not the age, it's the mileage. I'm, I'm failing on, but yeah, I, I, I mean, I can't say I thought of the Living Monolith as an A villain, and I, I think I appreciate him more now than I did then. As just, and, and I think it's based on what we talked about in the Back to the Bins episode that uh, graphic novel that they came out with that we covered on a Bins episode uh, that just showed really the the full breadth of his power. Uh, and it, to me, it made him into an awesome villain. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, so with that in, you know, with, with that as a background, I, I've come to appreciate the character much more than I did at this point. And it's interesting that, I, Oh, sorry, Paul. Go ahead. Well, I say Spider-Man plays a key part in the graphic novel as well. Yes, true. Yeah. Uh, I, I mean, I do think this is Marvel Team Up was a very hit and miss book, you know, they, because of the nature of the book. You know, you know, everything's very transient with the characters coming in and out other than Spider-Man. Uh, and especially when you have multi-part issues like multi-part stories like this, where you have 
two separate two separate issues with the same story, but you have two different characters that Spider-Man is effectively teaming up with. Uh, sometimes they did it really well, and sometimes it seemed very, very contrived. Uh, I think this is an example of the former. I think this this was well written. I think it was put together really well. I think the art is is you know it's John Byrne. I mean really, uh, <laughs> and then and then you you top it off with uh, the fact that like I said, I think that they did the character justice uh, as far as his power level because Thor, even Thor isn't able to defeat him. I think That's another right. thing in here though is that you, Byrne as an artist is able to sit there and draw a giant character like this and make him, you know, you make you feel that size and that grandeur. When uh, you know, the living monolith showed up in uh, Power Man and Iron Fist, that was Trevor Von Eden and Frank Springer trying to do it. And you, you just didn't get that sense from that. You, you didn't, you didn't feel it. I mean, Neil Adams definitely gives you that sense. He did that with, with the living monolith and also with the Sentinels. So, you, you know, a character like this, some guys can make them, you really feel the weight of that size, but not everybody can do it. Well, it's, it's similar to when we just recently covered the, his run on the Hulk, that you, the way he was drawing the Hulk, you got a sense of just how powerful the Hulk was. And I think that that's similar to what you're talking about here. Of, I mean, mm-hmm. with, with Thor and with, um, uh, with the monolith. And it does give it, a, I mean, on uh, page 15 where he, is is knocked into the 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 water and you and it's kind of tipping that that's very cinematic where he's tipping that boat over because if he's displacing on that water because he's hitting you know he's hitting it um and then he comes up and like you said it's like more the gargantuas so it, it is very uh, I think cinematic's the only word i keep thinking of that uh, mm-hmm. i think creates all the power that that we see here in the pages i think that you know you mentioned neil adams doing the living monolith i think neil adams more than any other artist uh, other than maybe Kirby, defines to me dynamic comic book art. Uh, Byrne had a way of emulating so many other artists that came before him. And that's not to say that he wasn't original unto himself, because I think he was. But he, he had a way of building on what these other artists did instead of just trying to create everything out of thin air. Uh, and I think it worked very effectively for him, because I think... Uh, he has a way of being dynamic in his art that reminds me often of those two. Uh, and, and again, it's not to denigrate his art by saying, oh, they, you know, they did it better. It's a compliment to his art that he could remind me of two of what I consider to be, to be great masters. Burnt stuff sometimes can look, and I, I don't know if it's, the, if it's the clean and kind of crispness of his art, but sometimes his stuff can look a little static. Where, as opposed to Kirby or Adams, you always sense have a sense of motion. All especially with Kirby, always you have a sense of motion going on. But sometimes the Bernie it looks a little static or sterile. You know, again, it, it sounds like a derogatory, but it's not. It just looks a little uh, place there. You know, like he's captured a, a moment in time instead of this is actually something that's happening. Well, one thing that Kirby and uh, Adams both did uh, in in their character poses is they put them in awkward positions that were but that were very uh something you could relate to mm-hmm. but you, you you'd see them go wow that's really awkward that he would do that and burn just didn't didn't do that whenever he created the poses that you know were his 
they were always seen to be, you know, cool. I mean, it's something I always used to say was, you know, Byrne would, could even make an ugly person look neat uh, in just the way that he draws them. And it's, you know, it's part of because of the way he does that. See, I don't think Byrne necessarily drew them looking static. I, I think the artist who, to me, most looked like people were in motion was Gene Colan. I always felt like his his characters never ever looked posed. They always looked like he was taking a snapshot of them in action. Mm-hmm. Uh, and and I think you know I think Byrne could did some of that as well. Uh, yeah, I mean I I just like look to me looking at uh, page ten, the shot of Thor and and the monolith facing off against each other. I I I, I, I think it 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 almost has a poster look, but it also doesn't it doesn't look static. It doesn't look like just a, a posed image to me. It looks like there's action. It, it, you know, you can feel the motion, especially with the way the hammer is moving. Right. Maybe it, maybe I maybe I mistook, misspoke, but not so much in this issue. But I'm saying later. I'm talking. I guess I'm talking about later on when uh, I'm thinking of later Burn when even kind of off the X Men, but more uh, his Superman work or some of his Fantastic Four work. Uh, certainly not this. This is this is very dynamic. So. Well, I know that during his Fantastic Four age, before he started going to his experimental bit, that his layouts were not as dynamic as what you're seeing here. And this is more of a throwback to the Neil Adams kind of layouts that you would see, though not as much you know separation between the panels. Mm-hmm. But I mean, what I, what I was trying to say, though, is that when Byrne would draw the characters, no matter what the pose, they were not awkward poses in a, in a normal, normal scene, unless he had a need for them to be awkward. It was, it was always, you know, they were in a a cool position or a cool pose or whatever that, that, you know, he could use and you could just go, wow, that was cool just for a single panel. And I guess when you think about it, it should make sense because these, these are, you know, they're, they're, you know, superheroes in, in, you know, in their own way, they're almost like athletes where they should be, you know, very agile and graceful. Mm-hmm. So when you see them, they should look in it. You know, they shouldn't look awkward. So right. awkward, you know, like like Thor landing on the mannequin in the um <laughs> in the in the window. Yeah, he's kind of splayed there, isn't he? Yeah, and he's got legs and <laughs> arms around him, and and then there's another one where Spider-Man is after um, Thor catches him, and he lands him on the rooftop, and he's pointing over to the living monolith. But but the panel before that. It looks yeah. like he's sitting on the edge and he's like out of breath, like, oh, my God. Whew. Well, yeah, he says, Whew, give me a minute. Oh, my. Oh, oh, I got the vapors. Oh. <laughs> so it's not a cool pose, but it's effective. No, but it's, sometimes you have to take kind of a you have to have a breather in your artwork. You've got all this dynamic yeah. stuff going on. You have to have or you can kind of you and the characters are, quote, taking kind of a break. Mm-hmm. Um, and then. Uh, of course, and the the panel right below it, uh, Thor's got like this spawn level cape that's that's flowing out. Look at the size of that thing. <laughs> you know, it was, Bill mentioned <laughs> yeah. the mannequins. It made me. Yeah, I'm looking at that panel again, and it makes me think of um, Kirby's Omac and um, the the fake females in that, or even when Byrne did the Omac series, uh, he had those in there too. And just the the look on the face, mm-hmm. it's really kind of creepy now. I can't look away. Thanks, Bill. <laughs> Anytime. Now, do you like the onomatopoeia of when when uh, the monolith goes down by the boat and it's a big spa lash? 
Now, Which is better than what? I, I'm, I'm, I'm actually changing subjects. <laughs> if you want to add to that, go ahead. No, no, no go ahead. Okay, because I was going to say, uh, in the last issue, Havoc is saying, you know, these people are going to pay. They killed somebody who I love, blah, blah, blah. This issue, he's like, oh, I got to get back to Lorna. Like, it's it's almost like now he's he's convinced that she's alive. Where, he, where last issue, he, he was convinced she was dead. dead. <clears throat> so, But nothing has happened to change that opinion. So sure. I don't know why he's, like, now he's so calm. Well, he's said, just saying he's got to get back. I mean, he's he's anxious to get back there, but he's not like, oh my God, we got to recover her body. Well, and why? You know, and I always I always thought when I, when I first read this, I thought, well, Thor's just gonna fly over there and take him back. But he's like, no, I'm gonna take you to Tony Stark, and he'll arrange. You'll get back sometime this evening. So, you know, well, why? How, why how wait long so would long? it take Thor? How long would it take Thor to? to have me on there, take them to uh, Scotland. Well, couldn't you and just it, like, and if it was really, really fast, could Havoc actually breathe while he was doing <laughs> well, it? Well, yeah. I, I actually think that this right here is not a failing of Claremont in the writing. I think it's actually smart. It's it's Alex sitting there thinking, you know what? I'm in New York without my passport, without my wallet. If I sit there and complain loud enough, maybe the Avenger will help me get home. Well, I mean, they they, they don't. We have already established <laughs> they don't have access to their. Quinjet. So is Stark gonna buy him a uh, a commercial seat on an airliner? He's gonna get, you know, talking well, about well, no. Could, could Thor have just whipped up a little dimensional thing with the uh, you know spun a little white Ajax tornado and poof, <laughs> just got into Scotland. Another, another point on this one is uh, he uses his spider sense to to take out the booby trap. Mm-hmm. I don't think his spider sense works that way. Oh, no, he should do that in gambling. <laughs> You're talking about, well, he actually, uh, like like I was saying before, Jim Shooter wrote a story where he used his, his spider sense to determine which way to go with, to make a, a, a nuclear reactor not explode. Yeah, which is this kind of the same thing he's using yeah. for a year. It doesn't right. work that way, though. That's not right. Spider well, like, sense is just supposed to kind of give him a warning of things that are, you know, danger approaching. That's right. it. Not oh, if you do, you know. So, so like, if if somebody said uh, we have two jobs to offer you, one is in accounting and one is in uh, processing. I was going to take the accounting one, but my spider sense said the processing <laughs> job was better, so I took it. Mm-hmm. You know, it's not just supposed to warn you of any bad decision you're about to make. It's supposed to warn you of of, of something approaching you, some sort of danger. Well, I, I think sure, the spider sense. Sure. Does whatever the story needs it to do. It's, it's and that's uh, yeah. It's it's the writer taking advantage of that. But yeah, yeah. I, I agree with you there. Um, and of course, now looking up at those panels where he's sitting or trying to do that, doesn't the spider sense actually look like black sperm rather than <laughs> yes? <wow. laughs> oh god, that's so wrong. I can't look away now. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it would have been better leave leave the black sperm off the picture. And just have him use his knowledge as a physicist to piece together how this booby trap works. And, and you know, I mean, he's a, he's a brilliant scientist. I understand that, that booby traps aren't his specialty, but it's more believable that he is, you know, at a genius level where he could figure out to, how to, uh, to, to disengage this booby trap rather than his spider sense told him when he was making a bad decision. And that makes sense. So, you guys want to rate this one? Uh, you guys go first now. Well, we don't 
typically great ours on our show. Great, but, we, we, but we, 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 we've come in, we've burst down the door, and we're changing the rules. <laughs> okay, I, I guess I'll go first since I went last last time. Um, the cover, you know, was, again, I, I was already looking forward to this book after the last one, but the cover just says it all. Uh, just that giant figure, the monolith. I get. I, I would give this cover an A every day, twice on Sunday. Uh, the the uh, the internal interior art is some of the best for Burn in that '70s era. Uh, so that's A plus for me. I just love the whole book in that regard. Uh, the writing is pretty darn good. So that's also going to get an A. So the book averages out to an A. Across the board, Brian. Uh, well, I'm going to piggyback on what you say. I'm going to give the cover an A. I'm going to give the interior art an A. And I'm going to give the book an A. So, again, it's, uh, that, that evens out to an A. So we've got two A's so far. Okay. Bill, you want to go or you want me to go? Uh, I'm going to give it an F for fantastic. <laughs> no. uh, I've, got no, um, I've got no qualms with anything that, 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 that we've been said. Although... Um, are they violating a copyright by having a sound effect called whammo? Whammo! <laughs> <laughs> not, not sure about that. And you could have bought Silly Putty and then made a copy of it. Oh, yeah. And pressing okay. it up on the comic book. Mm -hmm. And then Actually, it didn't much... work on comics at all. Mm. I don't think it worked on comics. I'm trying to think. I thought I used some on comic books. I, I think know. I tried and it didn't. Hmm. But newspaper print was much more uh, malleable. Yeah, well, it's not much, mild, easier, mild, much mild. easier to lift off of the page. Yeah. I wonder if the Kiss comic books would have done. And then you'd have Bloody Putty. <laughs> oh, that's terrible. <laughs> I'm gonna I'm gonna give it A's across the board too. Alright, I'm gonna I'm gonna probably do the same, but I'm gonna explain my thought process a little more. Explain Shane. Uh, as as like the, the cover, I agree with the way Brian described it, except I think it would be an A plus for me, except I, I feel like the greenish background doesn't make the art pop quite as much as it would if, if the color was a little bit more con in contrast to what is below it. So therefore, I'm going to give it an A instead of an A+. Plus. Mm. I think if we had a, just a slight bit more contrast, that, that the figures of the monolith Thor and Spider-Man would even pop more. It would almost give it like a 3D effect. So that's the only place where that fails at all. The interior art, I think, is beautiful, and I would give it an A+, plus, except I feel some of the backgrounds are lacking as we get later in the book. So it just gets an A. And the story itself, I think, is pretty much as good as you're going to get for a Marvel team-up, with the exception of the fact that he uses his spider sense to uh, take out the booby trap. So it gets an A and not an A+. Plus. It would have been A-pluses all around if, the, if those minor <laughs> nitpicks had been... Uh, you know, if I, if I didn't have those nits to pick plus, but it just gets an A otherwise. Hmm. Good, solid, solid. It's a solid book, both of them. Absolutely. Well, what do you good, what do you listeners choice. think? Did you guys like this as much as we did? We would really like you to write in, and let us know. You can leave a comment on our Facebook page, or you can even write us at gottagetburned at gmail dot com, or even if you could leave us a review on Apple Podcast. Um, you can find us at any of those. So please let us know. We need the feedback. And with that, I, is there anything? I liked ahead, it Paul. as much as you. Oh, <laughs> I thought you were asking. Well, I was just going to ask if you had anything more to say. You know, one one thing I did find interesting, you know, that, that uh, we didn't mention before, it was the tugboat. It referenced the tugboat as being the Molly D. And I just, I thought that was really, really weird. 
Um, and so I looked up, and the Molly D is actually a tugboat that's still in service today, though it is now in uh, in use in Slovakia, or at least it was registered last in 2009. But there are several boats out there that are Molly. There's like the Molly D, the Molly T, and and and, and other ones. So the for some D. reason, tug. Yeah, but the the the, the tugboats they like to call them Molly. So I don't know the whole story on that. I was just saying there's it seems to be a lot of tugs out there named Molly something with a letter following it. Yeah, but I, I didn't get much more than that on my research. I, I think an, in, an interesting thing about this is that apparently uh, – who was the editor, editor-in-chief at this time? Jim Shooter. 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 Yeah. I, I assume he's the one who recognized the quality in this book uh, unless it was the regular editor, which I think might have been Jim Shooter. Yeah, I think he's both. Yeah, because just because that little tag on the cover, uh, the Marvel bullpen proudly presents this month's outstanding achievement in com- in comics art. Mm. Just to put that on the cover, I think you know says that they they knew they had something here. That's very Stanley like. Well, yeah, yes, it is. But they picked out this out from among you know whatever books they had that month and said this is the one that that you know this is the best we have. At least that's the way I'm reading that. If it's not just like hyperbole, then yeah, that's that's even better. It's really weird though that um, it shows him as just as the editor because like the month before, Archie Goodwin was the editor of the of the Marvel team up. Uh, just, I'm looking that I'm looking that up to see what happened there if, if that was the case. He's editor and editor in chief. The tugboat soon will be. Oh, sorry. <laughs> I got no. I got nothing left. I'm I got nothing. <laughs> Paul. I spent. got nowhere else to go. <laughs> You're at, you're at, wait, Shooter's, wait, Shooter's editor next, on the next one, too. I could give you that sound effect. <laughs> we are that sound effect. Yes, you are. <laughs> well, yeah, he does show Shooter as the editor of this one this month. Yeah, he's also so next true. month. He's also editor and editor-in-chief. So, But Archie Goodwin, Archie Goodwin was the editor of that book for quite a while leading up to that. So some change was just made there. I'm just thinking that that when when the final pages came out, they saw how good this book was, and they said, "You know what? Slap that tag on the cover." That's right. Which which begs the question: Why did they not put Desunia on burn more? Because you know, obviously, you know, he was able to do some great stuff with that. It looked really good. I, I would only think maybe that that he as the anchor just decided, you know, it was too hard, too much work. <laughs> I don't know, but. Um, well, I know Burn that, that would go with my theory about the uh, backgrounds, because may, maybe the amount of detail he had to add in here and, and play Time. with uh, took him too long to be a regular Burn anchor, so that he had to, you know, like I said, he had to take a couple min- you know, minor shortcuts, but a couple of shortcuts on the inking just to get it done in time, perhaps. I, I'm definitely uh, hypothetical there a little bit, because I don't know that for a fact, but just that would be my my supposition, mm. which also, like I said, may have kept him from working with him more. What was I mean? I know the name Tony Zaniga many times, but I couldn't tell you specifically where he did most of his work. Looks like he did he passed away in 2012. Yeah, uh, regular com- contributor at DC, co-created Jonah Hex. He's uh, I think he's Philip. He's from the Philippines, isn't he? Mm-hmm. Which I think they said uh, 
Goodwin would go over to, I think it was Goodwin would, would often go to the Philippines and he was, I think he was part of a kind of a wave of Filipino artists that were coming over uh, to work uh, in, in the comics industry. Yeah, I mean, I don't see anything about, you know, his speed or whatever. And his, he wasn't... His bibliography is, is fairly extensive. Yeah, but he wasn't consistently on any one book there from, you know, in, in that period of time. I mean, he did show up on Savage Sword of Conan to ink a story. But I think it's just that probably what you're saying there, that his speed probably didn't work well with burn speed, so you didn't see them team up more. And it could, yeah, pretty- it could have been available because, I mean, think about Burns fixed to jump over to X-Men. He's got mm-hmm. Austin for that whole run, and then he kind of goes off on his own. So it just might, I don't know, I don't know how that stuff gets assigned. If it's, if it's, Hey, who's available? Can you ink this now? Or, and when he was on Avengers, it was almost a different inker every, every month. Uh, and, and that's what you also saw with Marvel team up because you saw, you know, different inkers like Mike Esposito and Dave hunt, uh, and others inking Burns work here. Uh, you know, when, when he was doing the, the various stories that we saw all through this, it seemed like definitely a hodgepodge of, of whatever anchor is available to help him on Marvel team up. Anyway, well, is there anything I, else that we want to discuss? I think we've kind of, we've done a, you know, not a third degree burn deep dive like we do do, but I think we've done a pretty thorough coverage of this book. I think we all would recommend it. If you haven't, if you haven't read it, pick both of them up or it's in the essentials. They collected, uh, is this any, any burn omnibus or any burn collection? Uh, I, I think it's supposed to be coming out in one soon. Uh, it, it, of course, is in the, the Marvel team-up trade paperback that's uh, pretty much all the Claremont Burn stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't think it's got the um, Adam Warlock story or the Red Sonja story in it. And I've got it right here. I should just go to the... Yeah, it's just the Chris Claremont stories. And some. Uh, it looks like Ralph Macchio had a little bit to do with one of the stories. So you've got the uh, the team up with Yellow Jacket and the Wasp, and you've got the other team up with uh, to uh, fight the uh, Super Scroll, and then the and Iron Fist stuff. Yeah, yeah, <clears throat> and then the Craven story with Tigra. Is it Tigra or Tigra? No, I was Tigra. Tigra. Yep. Couldn't tell you definitively. Yeah, but they seem to be putting out a lot more Burn omnibuses out lately. And so hopefully we'll be getting some uh, really good collections of that. But this one out there, uh, the the Marvel team-up uh, trade, I was able to get a Kindle of it. Uh, it was on sale last year for like 99 cents. Wow. And so if you catch Amazon at the right time, you can catch the Kindle versions of these that you can download on a tablet or whatever and read uh, at, at a very, very good price. Yep. But uh, that's all I got. That's all I got. Do you guys got anything else? I got nothing, Bill. I got a, I got a rock. <laughs> you got any place to go, Bill? I got maybe some place to go. I got uh, nowhere else to go. For me, I'm just sad. It's too late for a Mountain Dew. No, no. no you have never... to, you, you need enough time to make it warm too. That's right. You need to put it in the microwave <laughs> and then. Oh it. no, I chill mine. I chill mine, but I usually have one as consume one as we're doing an episode. Could not do it since we're work, we're doing this uh, late in the evening. Yeah. You should have held under your armpit while we were recording. Um, <laughs> As Paul is my yeah. witness, he's seen me drink hot Mountain Dew. Uh, oh, someone gave me a case of or a 12-pack of Diet Mountain Dew, and I just I cannot drink it, Phil. I'm sorry. It's it's horrid. 
And I, I had it sitting out in my garage for like two years. Well, that's why that, it was no good. I mean, that stuff does go bad, you know. <laughs> well, I, I, I offered it to you. But uh, before I would even have been able to ship it, uh, it started to explode in the garage during a very hot summer. <laughs> wow. <laughs> it was pretty nasty. It stunk. <sighs> anyway. Well, on that note, Brian, do you want to take us out? <laughs> no, I don't. I, I, I just like to. Sure. Uh, we'd like to thank you all for listening and just uh, be here right now with the, the coronavirus as things are going for us. Uh, we've been putting shows out uh, pretty much every week. So just you know, keep an eye out for us, and uh, we'll have our next episode ready for you as soon as you can imagine. For Third Degree Burn, I'm Brian Hughes. I'd like to thank our gifts, uh, gifts, excuse me, guests. I am <laughs> Paul a gift. The, That's Paul a gift. the producer <laughs> and Dr. Bill Robinson. Thanks, guys. And then, yeah. of course, always thanks to Tim Elliott. Yep. Yeah. Thanks, and I want to also want to thank Paul and Bill. It was it's always a uh, always Thanks a great to time to get to, to get on with you guys. And uh, if you guys do, you want to plug your other shows because I know Paul's got a couple irons in the fire. Bill uh, has got a couple other shows out, or are we good. Well, we're all on the Two True Freaks Network, and you got yeah. uh, you know you've got obviously Third Degree Burn that you're listening to, and uh, you can hear Bill and I on Back to the Bins and Listen to the Prophets. And then you could hear me and my guest du jour on uh, Is It Yours, all three of which, uh, all three of you gentlemen have been on uh, in the in recent days. Uh, I don't know when they are all going to air, but uh, you can be heard on there. Cool. Uh, I'm on other little smatterings here and there, too. And Gene and I are working on trying to get anime freaks back up and going, but things have been interfering again. So yeah. we'll see. Well, Bill, if you guys ever cover, I've been watching it on Funimation, the Star Blazers twenty one ninety nine. You ever get? I don't know if you guys have covered that. Or... No, I've been. Well, we covered it in its original form, mm-hmm. so I was eyeballing it a few times on Amazon, but then it kind of fell off my radar. It's, it gets a little pricey, but I, I used to be really into anime. So if you guys ever need a a third wheel, oh, okay, thank you. You know, and and we've already talked about my son. Well, if you have nothing else, we'd like to thank everybody for listening and look out for us the next time. Third Degree Burn saying good night all. He ate a crocodile. He 
gave his life for tourism. Thanks for listening. You can find us and many other great shows at tutufreaks.com. That's T-W-O-T-R-U-E-F-R-E-A-K-S.com. Third Degree Burn is spelled with the number three, R-D-D-E-G-R-E-E-B-Y-R-N-E, and is part of the Tutu Freaks network of shows. Follow us on Facebook and Twitter. Just look for Third Degree Burn, spelled with the number three, and burn spelled B-Y-R-N-E. Compliments, complaints, and recipes can be sent to gottagetburned at gmail.com. That's G-O-T-T-A-G-E-T-B-Y-R-N-E-D at gmail.com. Drop us a line and tell us how we're doing. Till next time, this has been Third Degree Burn. Some men aren't looking for anything logical, like money. They can't be bought, bullied, reasoned, or negotiated with. Some men just want to watch the world burn.